0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Ed Pulford, one of the hosts of the channel, coming to you today, as ever, from Sapporo in Japan. Today, we'll be talking to Maria Repnikova, Assistant Professor in Global Communication at Georgia State University, about her new book, Media Politics in China, Improvising Power Under Authoritarianism, published in 2017 by Cambridge University Press. Despite being an enormous and deeply complex society, the People's Republic of China is all too often viewed primarily through the lens of its politics, where dynamics of top-down coercion and bottom-up resistance are seen to predominate. Such a binary framing is particularly often applied to the country's media landscape, which is understood to be populated either by mouthpieces of the party state or, in vanishingly rare cases, dissident voices. Yet, as Maria Repnikova lucidly shows in media politics in China, there may be much more at play here than a straightforward cleavage between collaboration and resistance. Through discussion of the work of critical journalists and their interactions with officialdom, Repnikova paints a rich and provocative picture of the flexible and creative, if nevertheless somewhat precarious, nature of state media relations, which have wider implications far beyond the media sphere. Retnikova suggests that journalistic changemakers within the system, a group to whom the book is dedicated, delicately tread the fringes of the permissible, pursuing a collaborative mode of investigative work in an environment which remains saturated with party state power. Conversely, the authorities benefit from an ability to learn from the media's investigations, even as they frequently step in to restrict such work. The delicate symbiosis which thus emerges is expertly elaborated upon by Repnikova through her multi-perspectival consideration of various key actors in the system. Her theoretical framing and detailed case studies deriving from in-depth interviews and multilingual textual research add vital insight to our understanding of media and state society dynamics more generally in non-Western and authoritarian contexts. Further enhancing this later on in the book is a particularly compelling comparison with Soviet and Russian cases. But we'll discuss all this during our interview. And so without further ado, I'll say Maria Repnikova, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be here.
0: Great. Well, it's uh, great to have you and uh, it's really fantastic and pleasurable uh, read. Um, Now, I just wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about your background, where you come from academically and uh, how you came to focus on your subject of interest.
1: Uh, Sure. So this book uh, draws from my PhD dissertation, which was completed at Oxford, uh, where I was studying political science and really interested in contentious politics in China. So state-society relations and how some actors, particularly within the system or on the fringes, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, try to push forward some of their agenda and how that works uh, with a very powerful party state. So the ideas really came from the dissertation where I did significant amount of field work and uh, have written out a lot of these thoughts, which were further refined and kind of redeveloped um, as a postdoc fellow at the Annenberg School for Communication. In particular, there was a center that's now expanding called the uh, Center for Global Global Communication Research. Um, so it's called CARC, and uh, it's been doing a lot of really interesting work on um information systems, but also media culture and uh, political communication in non-Western contexts. So having spent two years there, I had time to rethink some of these ideas and to also get to know communication scholars. And uh, through that, I think I ended up actually as a, as a communication specialist and now working in global communication at Georgia State.
0: I see. I see. Very interesting. And, and how about the China angle? I mean, wh- at what point in your academic background did that come into the picture?
1: So the China angle started out when I was uh, 17 and I was, I was learning Mandarin. So that was kind of the beginnings of my curiosity in China was just through the language and culture and uh, spending a semester there in Beijing University as an undergrad student was uh, very interesting and you know, thought-provoking. So I spent about six months uh, there, improved my Chinese. And then after graduating, I had a year of Fulbright Fellowship in Harbin, looking at Chinese labor migration to the Russian Far East. So that was a very different project, but it, you know, it was my first real experience uh, conducting research in China, and from there I went on to Oxford to do the PhD.
0: Oh, I see, I see. That's uh, well, that's uh, that's great. Yes, I think time spent in the country is often a, a real spur for a, a deeper interest in the in the place. I mean, it's uh, always a an intriguing. A uh, place to spend periods of time, especially at these formative early years. Um, so I just wonder about also the transformation of the, the manuscript of the text from your PhD. As you say, it, it came from uh, the thesis that you wrote at Oxford. Um, could you say a little bit about the process of turning it from a PhD dissertation into a book? I know as a, as a sort of matter of tradecraft, this is something that's, that may be quite interesting to our listeners. How much needed to change and what did you find the most challenging aspects of, of making that transformation from dissertation into book?
1: Uh, sure. So there are several aspects that I think were quite challenging. I mean, the first one is... Uh, making sure that it reads as a book, you know, that all the ideas and the key arguments flow together, that it's not just kind of some more disparate chapters, uh, that I think they were already linked like that as a thesis, but I had to do more work to create kind of smoother passages uh, from one piece to the next. Um, But especially kind of trying to relate these ideas to the broader readership outside of of the more narrow uh, community I was speaking to as a, as a thesis writer, just thinking about Chinese politics and this particular angle that I was thinking about, but trying to relate it to, you know, the broader community of scholars that look at China, but also look at um, non-Western societies that examine censorship, state society dynamics, so kind of trying to really kind of create something a little more uh, focused, but also more um, uh, broad in terms of the audience and the potential to create some more interesting conversations beyond my field.
0: Hmm, I see. I see. And in terms of updates, I mean, uh, obviously there were a, a few years between your submission and defence of your PhD and the publication of the book. How how pressurised did you feel to try and keep up with this constantly fluid and and, and changing dynamic? Uh, obviously, the situation you describe is highly contemporary, and and was was there a lot of updating that you felt you had to do?
1: Yeah, it's it's always tricky. I think for um, this kind of first books in terms of the decisions, how much you update and how far you go. In keeping the topic contemporary, the the kind of theme that I examine, as you mentioned, is is extremely um, fast changing, and I think that's the case for many contemporary topics in China. So if you continue to update it, and, and you know until the very day, you, you can you can pretty much keep updating it for the rest of your life, you know, and never finish the book. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of a challenge of like, where do you stop um, and what kind of things do you capture. So my compromise was to update it, the latest trends, the kind of changes and continuities under presidency in my concluding chapter, uh, but also to infuse some of these latest policies and um, shifts into other chapters to kind of trying to keep in mind that, you know, some things have changed, some things haven't, but to kind of add some of the uh, examples that are more current. um, And also to do some follow-up interviews with the journalists that I've spoken to over the years. I went back several times after my PhD defense to meet, my interview is to get a sense of how things have evolved. So I tried to incorporate that into, especially to the conclusion, but also throughout the book. Uh, but that said, it's, 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 it, it is, you know, drawing on the most, the more rich data, the case studies are drawing in the who, who and error. So in some ways it, it captures a particular historic period. Um, you know, the the decade of uh, Hu Jintao just preceding uh, the current era. But at the same time, I would argue that many things that we observe today are also reminiscent of what I've written about in the past 10 years. You know, thinking about Xi Jinping era as completely new or completely, you know, radically different, I think, is, is also a mistake. There are a lot of continuities that we can observe and study from one era to the next.
0: Yeah I think that's I think that's a very good point so I think that that comes through very clearly in the book and and actually so much of the richness of the book is the is the conceptual framing and the and the whole uh, picture of a, a model for understanding uh, journalist uh, uh, society and and uh, uh, official relationships uh, in China and so actually I think um, that, that richer framework that you provide could be applied in 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 many contexts as you show so so I think that works really well um but now we know something about how the book came about and 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 how it evolved out of the thesis perhaps we could jump right into to the actual content um now it's structured uh, in a way which i found extremely uh, satisfying and, and engaging to read uh, as the argument kind of builds uh, through the the four major parts uh, each part comprises two chapters so uh, For an East Asian context, you've got an auspicious eight chapters there, which is obviously very pleasing, Um, beginning with a a conceptual and theoretical introduction, followed by a description of the more precise dynamics of relations between state and media actors, then some uh, concrete examples of how these play out in practice, and finally comparisons of the material. Which you've elaborated in the in the first uh, three parts of the book with other contexts, notably those of Russia and the Soviet Union. So uh, perhaps we can begin with the first section in which you kind of establish everything. The the, the section entitled conceptual and theoretical frameworks. Um, so you give us an overview in that of the dynamics of how media operate in China um, and 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 essentially some of the more widely held understandings in the European and American context of what. Media in China is um, now. Perhaps you could say something about how you position your book in relation to some of these prevailing ideas uh, about uh, about about media in China in general.
1: Uh, sure. So the book kind of starts out with uh, presenting this dichotomy of how. Chinese media has been viewed and treated not just by um, sort of scholars, but also by analysts and observers, journalists that tend to talk about censorship, you know, propaganda, the kind of dark side of Chinese media, which is not entirely surprising, of course, because Chinese media is heavily censored and it tends to be very much at the bottom of the list when it comes to press freedom rankings and so forth. So it's not surprising to see that that's how this issue tends to be uh, framed and addressed. So we see this very dark kind of uh, understanding of Chinese media as really kind of a servant to the party state, a really loyal servant to the party. And then we also see reports and um, other kind of scholarly works emerging and very much emphasizing this notion of dissidents or critics that perhaps might one day overturn the entire system. So the kind of actors that have very vocal and very much anti-party and so forth. So this dichotomy the is something that I position my study sort of against or within, um, if you will, by talking about journalists and the genre of journalism, critical journalism, as I call it, which is sort of in between of this oppositional attitude towards the regime or complete control or kind of service to the party by media actors. So I, I talk about this genre is something that's contentious and important and representing of um, ideas coming from society, for the public. Uh, the kind of issues they're concerned about are the issues that journalists are writing about. And yet, these journalists are not entirely antagonistic. They're not risking their lives to change the system. They're trying to upgrade it or improve some of its facets, um, despite the frustrations they face on a daily basis. So that's kind of where you know the book, uh, how it gets framed and positioned within the broader debate of how we think about Chinese media um, and Chinese intellectuals more broadly in the popular discourses.
0: Sure, that's great. And so, so yes. Yeah, so the people that you talk to, your your interlocutors for this project, are this category or this group uh, that you term critical journalists. Um, perhaps you could say a little bit more elaborate, a bit more on on who precisely these people are, uh, where they came from as a, as a group, as you see it in the Chinese context, uh, and what their relationship to some other social activists or, or social actors is.
1: Sure. So perhaps I should first maybe introduce a little bit more about the concept of critical journalism as a genre, because a lot of works focus primarily on investigative journalism as kind of this specific angle, you know, which is um, important and has been an emphasis of uh, several studies thinking about how counterintuitive or surprising it is to find investigative journalism in a repressive society. But what I mean by critical journalism is something a bit broader. It's, it includes in-depth, um, and in-depth and critical kind of opinion pieces and human interest stories, as well as investigations. So it's kind of like a mix of different ways of you know, storytelling uh, that focuses on contentious issues of high relevance to the public, so by these issues I mean, you know, environmental degradation, corruption, uh, the management of uh, public infrastructure, various man-made and uh, natural disasters, and how the state responds to them, um, inequality, and many other uh, topics that have become relevant since China opening up in China's opening up and reform has become really prevalent, but also has caused a lot of instability and um, dissent and concern, you know, from, from society. So these are the kind of, this is the genre the kind of reports that address those issues uh, in a provocative in depth style, but also tend to be quite professional. These are the ones uh, that I tend to focus on and the journalists who produce them are the critical journalists that I engage with in my book. And uh, they tend to inhabit different platforms or different layers of Chinese media sphere. The most prominent layer in my work was the commercialized um, news outlets. So these commercialized outlets include, you know, Tsai magazine, Tsai Jing, which might be familiar to some of your listeners or China observers, but also the famous Southern media group, in particular Southern Weekly and Southern Metropolitan Daily, which was very important um, medium of critical communication in the past decade. And unfortunately, it has been declining in relevance uh, since Xi Jinping came to power. So these commercialized news outlets have really produced probably the most striking and uh, exciting in-depth reports, investigative reports that i have analyzed uh, in the book. But beyond that, there are also investigative units within party media. By party media, I mean completely state-controlled media that we associate with kind of party mouthpieces like People's Daily, China Youth Daily, CCTV and so forth. Um, A lot of them have internal investigative units and even the ones that also produce reports for the public like Freezing Point, Dian, and, and some of the others. So I also mm-hmm. focus on party media, including those who produce, uh, journalists who produce internal reports. So it's Nathan kind of reports that only go to officials, not to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other, the third layer are journalists working for kind of as freelancers, working on social media, primarily the kind of citizen journalists, but they contribute their opinion pieces and reports to various news outlets. So they're kind of like up for grabs, you know, as any kind of freelance journalist would be in the West. And uh, lastly, in the past few years, we're seeing an emergence of online-only news outlets in China, such as the paper out Shanghai, you know, the Pengpai news Outlet. Um, we're also seeing investigative and in-depth correspondence, kind of teams from Tencent and Sohu. Um, so these kind of outlets, these new teams, these new uh, platforms have attracted lots of journalists from Southern Media Group and other kind of dying traditional news outlets. So I have also engaged with um, these correspondents um, later. Later, in terms of updating my my book and kind of thinking about what changed under C, I've looked into these new platforms as well. So this okay, group right. of journalists, uh, you know, the the categories itself is sort of self constructed in the sense that there isn't this, there there aren't specific maybe micro qualities that make you belong to this group. But but the, the way that they kind of unify is that they tend to actually collaborate quite closely with each other. Um, they share information through WeChat circles. Um, back in 2000s, it was more through Weibo and other platforms. Uh, they're kind of a community of people that care about social justice, that care about professional news reporting, that see themselves as representing the people, seeking the truth, uh, You know, having kind of a higher role in society than just the regular propaganda journalist that's just there to report the party's um, directives of policies. So they're they're unified in that form, and they also have relations with um, other activists, NGO leaders, lawyers in particular, have formed very close ties with journalists that have investigated in trying to push for certain agenda on certain issues, especially the environmental issue has been very prominent in unifying some of these actors together.
0: I see, I see. Well, that's a, yeah, I mean, it's a fascinatingly broad, uh, but also, as you say, kind of relatively easily uh, uh, groupable uh, cohort of people there. Um, just in terms of how you met these people and how you, how you specifically got, got meetings and, and accessed uh, the, uh, the people you wanted to talk to, um, what were your first inroads there and, and how did you contact uh, these, some of these uh, key figures in the critical journalist sphere?
1: So my first inroads into the sphere uh, were actually made during my master's thesis research, which was also carried out at Oxford, uh, where I was focusing on journalism education. Um, it's kind of elite journalism education, how journalists come into being socialized and trained. So this... A master's thesis actually came out as a China quarterly article last year, so it took, took a long time, <laughs> but it's out there. But the, but the first step towards this topic was through that lens of education. And uh, the reason it helped me so much in making my first connections was that some of these journalists I ended up interviewing were also guest professors, guest lecturers um, at various classes and institutions that I've looked at. So they were invited by the faculty members to give speeches about the role of journalism um, and so forth. And also some of the academics um, that I've interviewed – also kind of media activists so they were closely knit um into this community of journalists they were organizing investigative journalism conferences media ethics workshops and other events which uh, open doors to both students and uh, journalists to kind of come together and talk about really important um, phenomenon of that time. So this was a kind of an interesting, you know, stepping stone to see who comes to those events, you know, trying to meet this individual journalist uh, as both lecturers, but also as participants of those uh, workshops. So the first step was kind of made there where I made my initial connections. I tried to understand also which news outlets, which journalists could sort of um, be categorized as a you know more critical group by doing preliminary research uh, with faculty members scholars who research the same you know topics as I did so trying to get their insights into the subject and then starting to build my network in a so called snowball technique where you know some introductions initial ones lead to more and more uh, introductions in the field and expanding into kind of a network that you create as a researcher that's then you draw on to you know specify certain things or meet more people
0: I see. Yeah, that, well, that makes sense. That's really, uh, accessing that, that world from, from the inside out, which I guess is a, a very effective way to do it through local connections and local, uh, scholarship. Um, that's, that's, that's brilliant. So. I just wonder now, uh, in terms of how those people uh, interact with uh, authorities and, and, and with um, the agents of the party state. I mean, as you got to know these people, you were building up this picture of the dynamics uh, that prevail there. Um, you term this interaction or the, the, the mode of interaction "guarded improvisation." Um, so, I just wonder if you could uh, explain really both elements of this uh, and quite what you mean by. The the dynamic of guarded improvisation there between critical journalists and um, and and and, uh, and the authorities. Um, who's doing the guarding? Who's doing the improvising? Um, how, how do you uh, how do you see this term that you've coined?
1: Um, yeah, so I, I kind of describe this dynamic as uh, at a higher level, it's more of a flexible partnership where authorities and journalists are not necessarily going against each other, but they have kind of this fluid collaboration that. Um, fuses them together to work on certain issues, to improve governance in some domains. But this improvements, this kind of uh, collaborative framework is also very, very flexible. And that's really how it gets sustained over time because the rules of the game are now so clearly defined. And this is what what this term uh, guarded improvisation refers to, is this idea that both officials... And journalist actors improvise or creatively adjust to one another on kind of ad hoc basis. You know, it could be uh, within one hour, it could be within a day or a week. You know, there's this constant uh, stream of improvised acts that goes back and forth. And the reason I call it guarded is because unlike some studies that talk about this kind of symbiosis between state and society, I see this really as a very much state driven, state dominated relationship where the authorities do, of course, much of the guarding and really kind of trying to fine tune the pace of improvisation, the scope and so forth by constantly keeping a close eye on the relationship. So the powerful, the more powerful actor here is certainly the party state, but it doesn't mean that journalists don't have any agencies, you know, to poke the holes in the system or to explore the kind of the labyrinth of the city, if we use the dissertation sort of metaphor, uh, this idea of not changing the structures or how the city is built, but just kind of walking around the alleys and trying to, you know, understand uh, and navigate the labyrinth. So that's, that's the uh, kind of the synthesis of that term.
0: I see, I see. Yeah, no, that that, that makes sense. Well, that, that leads us quite nicely on to uh, considering uh, part two of the book, the, the third and fourth chapters, um, which uh, deal with uh, the subjects you call, or the, the overall title, mutual objectives and routine dynamics. So you've hinted there at what the kind of goals of some of these critical journalists in their interactions and in their journalistic work um, are. But um, perhaps the... the, the, the initial thought might occur to people that this idea of mutual objectives seems somewhat incompatible, perhaps, with the idea that it's a fully state or a very much a state-dominated dynamic, as you say. Um, so could, could you say a little more about how the mutuality of what journalists and uh, agents of the party states are seeking, uh, how, how that how that plays out in practice? Uh, is it is it really that they fully share um, the same ideas about what they're trying to achieve?
1: Yeah, the mutuality um, exists in sort of on several levels. I mean, first the government, central government, in particular, since uh, pretty much almost two decades ago, they've they've started to encourage or uh, very ambiguously endorse this this notion of media supervision or public opinion supervision, which is uh, in Chinese is called dian Du, This idea that the public should supervise, you know governance um, and thereby help improve governance and media is an actor one of many actors kind of responsible for highlighting those grievances for helping the party adjust its policy so essentially being kind of still being the servant of the party but uh, trying to see and to investigate to understand how governance works in different locales particularly at the local level and what people think about various policies so kind of as a feedback channel a feedback mechanism and that idea of feedback, um, it really speaks more broadly to Chinese political system, I think, which is still to this day, one could say, is somewhat consultative. You know, it's, it's unlike the regime that we're seeing, for instance, in Russia and many other authoritarian systems. There's a real kind of obsession uh, by the Chinese party state to incorporate societal feedback into its governance um plans and systems. And of course, now we're seeing more perverse effects of that with the surveillance system and kind of more obsessive, uh, you know, ideas turning into kind of perhaps more harmful mechanisms. But when it comes to journalism, it was sort of termed as one of these potential um, aids or tools for the party to understand, you know, what's what's gone off wrong, what can be fixed. And it's also not particularly threatening because, the encouragement is really very much stressed to be on local level issues only, uh, so not touching the central government, uh, not touching the system, and also really trying to be constructive in, uh, in presenting critique. And by constructive, meaning really focusing on solutions, ways to fix problems, um, balanced tone. So basically everything that's a little more harmonious, you know, to use the Chinese words, right? <laughs> so, sure.
0: sure.
1: Which, which is, which is in, in and of itself is quite limiting. So mm-hmm. that's the that's the side of the the government, and then on the side of journalists. Uh, even though we often think of journalists as in the Western context as only trying to kind of expose the truth and sort of be this again this kind of adversary of the state, in the Chinese context, a lot of journalists talked about the notion of gradual change, the kind of step by step piecemeal approach to political change uh as partially kind of a compromise that the fact that there isn't really another way, right? Because since the Tiananmen um incident, if you will, that you know, there were there's been a lot of kind of forced compromises that have been made. You know, if you want to stay and be active in the system, you have to subdue yourself to certain roles that are less controversial. So part of it is certainly a compromise, a self-censored kind of compromise uh, of survival, but there are also kind of idealistic goals that have been embedded in some of these discourses in terms of intellectuals kind of worrying about the system, you know, working with a party, with government trying to improve the system, this idea of improvement um, and this notion that, as journalists, they could be concerned also with solutions, with constructive tone, with some kind of a future-oriented, you know, reporting, which in fact has actually turned into sort of a genre of its own also in Western context, a solution-based journalism. So that's that's sort of, that's where the congruent kind of theme lies, that both of them see this journalist, journalism and uh, critical reporting and investigative journalism as a potential kind of agent of change, but an agent of change in a very gradual and within-the-system way. Uh, but of course you know the journalists often have very different ideas about what this change really entails on a daily basis which issues should or should not be addressed and that's where the conflict comes in that's where the tension is and the kind of improvisation um steps in
0: sure well that yeah that, that uh that makes that makes a lot of sense um but it does it does uh really emerge and and, uh, and you uh elaborate pretty effectively that this is ultimately a dynamic in which the party state comes out on top you know in the end even if there is a uh, shared set of objectives here if there's mutual contribution towards the idea that you're improving society well if the ultimate goal of uh, improving improving the way society works um, is ultimately to buttress the the party's hold on power. You know, essentially, I guess uh, one of the objectives that uh, uh, agents of the party state might have in trying to improve the lot of, of the people more broadly, viewed cynically, is to make sure that the party retains its grip on on power. So it's uh, it's it's certainly one in which you can imagine journalists themselves feel it's a, a immensely immensely challenging work to kind of sustain the energy and 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 and, re- and keep dedication to. The idea of, of improving the system from within um as you put it um you have to th- that you describe uh, how they have to deal with lost stories which are pulled after they put a lot of work into it or or efforts that they make to, to try and outmaneuver or outrun censorship efforts um i just wonder in terms of the personalities that you were talking to the critical journalists themselves these must or at least that, that one would one would think that these are pretty courageous and and, and strong people. Um, what kind of characters emerged uh, as you as you were talking to uh, your various uh, interlocutors during during this project?
1: Yeah, part of the attraction of this project and it's the energy to sustain the research, I think, really is the kind of uh, character of the interlocutors. You know, in many ways, uh, the kind of courage you you noted, but also perseverance. You know, the real sense of patience and uh, oftentimes this sort of melancholic optimism, right? This idea that, yes, things are not right. And there's a lot of frustration, oftentimes even anger, but there's still this kind of push forward, you know, whatever we're doing, we have to keep going and finding other ways. And you can even see this now under President presidency where some of the people I, I interviewed have shifted gears and turned into kind of social enterprises or other forms of communicating or galvanizing on social causes but even though they some of them dropped you know from traditional journalism sphere they're still kind of finding spark and finding ways to make change or to at least you know in their ways make some impact so i I found this sort of yeah the courage but also resilience really very impressive and that's something that really struck me throughout this research and every time i go back i still see the resilience there despite the changing circumstances
0: just in terms of what they're dealing with, you know, the, the uh, kinds of measures, I mean, perhaps uh, we, we could just paint a, a slightly better picture of, of what sort of censorship measures are taken by, um, by, by the, the authorities when it comes to keeping a lid on on certain kinds of journalistic coverage. I mean, what, what kind of uh, challenges are they dealing with on a day to day basis?
1: Yeah, the challenges are really quite diverse. And even though we often hear primarily about content filtering online, the Great Firewall is being this really uh, popular theme that um, is emphasized all over, when it comes to journalism itself, there are different tactics that are deployed at once by Chinese authorities. And what I found is that one of the most popular tactics is actually not post facto, but kind of preemptive censorship. So this takes form of uh, directives that tell journalists to only write positive stories, you know, to kind of frame things in positive ways. Uh, some of them tell them tell them not to write anything outside of the Sinhua news, the official news agency's version of events. Uh, others tell them that they can report but not discuss a certain issue. And then, of course, there's the complete blackout or sort of you cannot report or discuss the issue. So there are different strategies, you know, different types of uh, directives that come through. And uh, the kind of percentage of the scope of stories that i making make it into print has been sort of kept at the constant of 50%. You know, journalists will say, Oh, about half the stories don't make it half. Kind of, it's like a 50% chance, you know, if something goes through or not, of course, that's not a statistical number, you know, that's been verified by reading every report. I think it's impossible to really quantify it, but it tells you that, you know, the sentiment is that, you know, there's some chances that it's about half and half. And the biggest frustration is that journalists invest a lot of time into preparing you know, the investigations and the reports, uh, you know, spending time in the field and so forth, and then being told in the middle of their work that they cannot publish it, publish a story. So it's, it's this kind of cut that happens really in the middle of the task that they find extremely uh, challenging to take, because that's something that you already feel really invested in and um, embedded into the particular case. And yeah, that's that's, I think, one of the hardest things that they, they face on a daily basis.
0: Yeah, that does sound like a, an extraordinary, extraordinarily challenging and, and pretty demoralizing uh, situation to deal with. So uh, as, as you say, these must be some pretty, pretty resilient, uh, resilient people. Um, moving on, perhaps we can look at the uh, specific case studies that you uh, describe and, and, and discuss in depth, uh, which really give us a, a fuller picture of how these uh, kind of relationships operate in practice. Um, in, in part three of the book, crisis events, you, you discuss both uh, one particular large-scale event that around the Wenchuan earthquake, uh, which happened in Sichuan uh, in two thousand and eight. If I'm correct there, uh, and then following that, more a more long durée uh, general. Uh, trend of how journalistic coverage of coal mining safety and and, and accidents in coal mines uh, unfolded during the uh, Hu Jintao, Wen Jiabao era. Um, So uh, perhaps you could say something about how these two cases uh, bring out different facets of of what complex role the media is playing in relation to uh, the party state's management of these these crisis events.
1: Sure. So, these cases really kind of illuminate the dynamics that I talk about in the first few chapters. This notion of guard improvisation is underpinning the relationship between journalists and the party. And you see that in the case of the Wenchuan earthquake, uh, with the party at first being you know, very reluctant to open up information, to allow any media to report on this uh, you know, unimaginably tragic um, disaster. And then journalists themselves kind of being the first to improvise. In this case, many journalists were already in the field or on their way there when they got the directive to not report. So they actually ended up reporting first and breaking the directive, you know, at the beginning. So they were the first to initiate the improvisation in this case. Um, And then the authorities adjusted and they chose a different strategy of kind of this more co-optive, you know, manufactured kind of openness that, you know, in the beginning stages they were allowed to... Sort of get interviews with officials. There was a lot of help in the field. There was a lot of working together. This kind of collaboration really came out in the beginning phases, which is when journalists, some of them, especially the, the ones working for Southern Weekly and Saicin, came across the deadly um, and terrible you know, scandal of the poorly built schools in Sichuan, which killed over 5,000 children. So this, this became the scandal of this earthquake. It wasn't um, as much just the overarching event, which was horrible, but it's more the kind of man-made factors behind the school collapse. And these reports came out, and they were quite harsh and critiquing local officials and questioning some of the systems in place that allowed this to happen. And that's when censorship really kicked in, when authorities completely shut the door on any reporting uh, about the earthquake and about especially about the schools and started to primarily use media as a propaganda tool. So we see here kind of this idea of, you know, perseverance and resistance by journalists, first at the stage of just reporting on it in the first place, but then pushing forward and writing in-depth investigative stories. And we see the authorities as kind of at first allowing for some of this to happen, kind of adjusting, but then towards, towards the end when they saw this, how critical those reports are, uh, embracing various ad hoc strategies, improvised strategies to clamp down on critical content. And then further on, responding to some of these investigations by addressing the issues, but only superficially and kind of in an ad hoc manner and not quite focusing on the institutionalized dynamics on accountability, on, you know, who is going to go get punished for what and how to preempt this from happening in the future. So this this really showcases kind of like both the strength of... uh, critical journalism and i think the power of civil society more broadly in the case of such a large disaster but also the weakness that once a certain window is shut it's very hard to reopen it again and to ask further questions so that that's the sensitivity there
0: yeah in terms of the schools this this very specific example which i think would have stuck in over people's minds from that time from the from the earthquake and the these the the, the build, so many buildings public buildings like schools which collapsed uh, during uh, during the quake um, i mean was it the case that the central party authorities the national level uh, uh, officials didn't would just have not been aware at all was it was it the case that they were using journalists uh, and, and the investigations, as you say, from uh, Taishin or, or or the Southern Media Group, um, to to actually learn uh, things that to them were previously unknown that local officials were covering up and and, and concealing. Um, is that would you say that was one uh, way in which the, the sort of state was benefiting from the work of, of critical journalists?
1: Well, it's it's not 100% clear whether they knew about um, what was happening or not, because some reports actually pointed out that uh, some official bureaus at the central level were aware of the potential problems with the schools. But, you know, there are so many problems that the government is dealing with that it's quite possible they didn't pay close attention to it or overlooked it in favor of other issues. So this report definitely illuminated the extent of the issue and, of course, the tragic consequences and how all of this came about. But I think the word benefited might be a little bit of a stretch because, in a sense, um, the government also lost face, right, as part of this investigation. They, were, they 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 kind of came out looking not very responsible and, you know, questioned by the public. But the important thing here is that the majority of reports blamed local officials, so the responsibility really fell on local authorities and central government immediately embraced this kind of uh, potential for image making, for appearing as uh, responsive by uh, rebuilding the schools, sending delegations there, you know, speaking to the public, creating this imagery that, you know, they're really managing the crisis well. So, you know, they kind of went, um, not unpunished, but they sort of came out of this not necessarily looking as bad as perhaps we would expect the government to you know, at the highest levels, to look like in a Western democracy, for instance.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and this brings us on to the the kind of question of of, of the role of local dynamics in this overall picture. Uh, I mean, it's a picture that. Quite often is reproduced, I think a, a scandal happens at a local level in a small place. Uh, local officials are blamed, and then national uh, officials march in and, and, and clear everything up and are seen to be uh, blust- uh, loudly and in a blustering way, resolving everything and, and setting everything to rights without actually perhaps addressing the underlying uh, issues but um this uh, makes makes me think of uh, local journalism as well as a as a, as a role, as a check on, on, on some of these local abuses. Uh, I mean, are there significant critical journalists working on, a, working on a highly local level, or is it often the case that it takes these larger national media organisations with their resources to, to come in and, and, and deeply investigate these sorts of situations? I mean, in Sichuan, for example, are there, are there uh, very, very local figures who are, who are working in this critical journalist position?
1: Well, the thing with many of these journalists is that they, they they kind of are local because they're working, you know, they're based at particular locales, like at the provincial level. So even though the, the outlets examined have national influence, a lot of them are based, you know, especially in Guangzhou at that time, they're not based in cell in Beijing or operate in Beijing and their investigations often concern different locales around the country. But the way that they lo- work with very local journalists, you know, some, somebody maybe at the county level or the village level, is that local journalists who are unable to report on certain issues, due to local censorship and so forth, they would kind of spill the information over to their colleagues at more prestigious, you know, more national level media. So there's kind of cross-layer or cross-hierarchy collaboration and cross-media collaboration that takes place in China as a result of local-level dynamics because the media is primarily first controlled by local officials um, wherever they're registered. Uh, So the most sensitive thing is to report on your own, you know, kind of geographic uh, spaces, whether it's your city, county, and province, of course. So if you're coming from another place reporting on uh, on them, it's a little bit less sensitive. So we see this dynamic over and over, and it's termed as ext- ex- extraterritorial supervision. So du in Chinese, this idea of going elsewhere to supervise <laughs> governments, which I think is it's quite unique to China. I haven't seen this dynamic or haven't heard about it being uh, played out anywhere else.
0: Well, again, I mean, I suppose in a place that's so uh, so so large, I mean, it's a pretty bland fact about China, but it's it's a big and populous place, and so I suppose uh, swooping in from from elsewhere and, and uh, being able to uh, perhaps up deploy different tactics or uh, leverage certain national networks uh, could be could be an advantage. Both, in fact, to um, media actors and the state actors that then respond to their efforts to investigate cases like those that you that you describe in in part three um as i say this gives us a really good picture of, of how these things operate in in, in practice and uh, i'd encourage listeners to 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 get pick up the book and, and delve into that in more detail because that's often that's really where a lot of the uh detailed nuance of of the state society uh, state journalistic relationship uh, plays out um finally though we can move on to part four, which I have to confess personally, for me, is probably, uh, arguably, the most interesting section of the book, given uh, my personal interest in Sino-Russian matters. Um, and here, really, you you, you outline a, a broader picture of what implications your study and and, and the, the foregoing uh, work on the dynamics within China might have for, for our broader understandings of, of power and of, of uh, these un-democracies, uh, as, as, as you term them. Um, so, uh, we move on to the Russian and Soviet cases in particular, uh, and firstly, the dynamics of journalistic operations in the uh, Gorbachev period at the very end of the Soviet Union. Um, what was it that motivated you to make this comparison, um, and and what kind of uh, similarities or distinctions did you find uh, between the, the Chinese and, and then the very late Soviet context?
1: Yeah, the motivation for this comparison was uh, the fact that the relationship between journalists uh, you know especially more kind of uh, i guess more liberal oriented but journalists or professional journalists in the soviet union late soviet union and the state the party state was also kind of reminiscent of this collaborative framework that uh, i've been describing in the chinese case in fact in many of my talks when i meet a sovietologist or someone working in that period they would mention how you know not only soviet not only late soviet period but other periods as well there's a real kind of Comparison or congruence in some of these Chinese practices and Soviet practices. But uh, the relationship really broke down um, under Gorbachev where journalists ended up galvanizing the broader society against the system at large. So this idea of the breakdown has been really alarming to the Chinese party state And the Soviet Union has been used as an example to understand how to prevent this collapse from happening in China. So I thought this was really fascinating how this is kind of an anti-model in a sense for China And I wanted to understand through the comparison why, you know, what kind of features were lacking or what sort of perhaps characteristics uh, were not there that ended up yielding this kind of outcome that was very different from China. So in the Soviet case, I looked at both this notion of collaboration and um, how the media is managed this idea of improvisation that we see in China. And I found that the collaborative element was very weak uh, because really it was this idea of collaboration at the beginning of Gorbachev um, period, but then journalists were overpowering the state, you know, they were given too much power and there wasn't enough of this guarded nature of the relationship that we see in China. So a lot of censorship came too late or not at all. So kind of signaling to journalists, they can do whatever they want. Um, And there wasn't enough of the back and forth kind of intermingling uh, between journalists and authorities to prevent this relationship from falling apart. It was kind of a, door wide open, you know, not only to journalists, but also to the public and critics and dissidents and all kinds of voices that were submerged in the past, and then not really quite keeping the lid on that door, sort of letting it devolve and become its own force, almost yeah, pretty much separated from the state. So that's something that was really different, I think, from the Chinese dynamic, where we really see that um, the guarded element is there to kind of co-opt and contain you know, these voices, and the constant back and forth improvisation is very much an important factor that uh, keeps the two in conversation with each other, in constant contact that really disappeared um, in the Soviet period.
0: I think this uh, this is, provides a really intriguing new lens through which to understand the demise of the Soviet Union, especially in, in Chinese eyes. I mean, what you hear a lot uh, from, uh, as you say, comparisons, uh, especially from a Chinese perspective, warnings about what happened to the Soviet Union, is the idea that Gorbachev lost control completely over over, over power. Um, but most often... What I've heard is that it was the army that was the key, the key factor in this, and that the party's control over uh, over the military was was a key uh, element. And so, to hear a reappraisal of this situation through the lens of of, of of the work of journalists and the relationship between the party and and journalists themselves uh, is 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 really brilliant. It's a it's a great uh, uh, assessment and, and, a, and a re a reimagining of of uh, what occurred there. Um, why was it? Do you think that? that this was allowed to happen if you see what i mean i mean from a from a party point of view why why did they let it happen um was was it the case that for example european or western models for a critical media a media in an oppositional role to uh, that of state power was more transparently available to soviet uh, journalists or or to to uh, soviet uh, people in that late period than it is to uh, to contemporary China. I mean, what, what, what do you think underlay the fact that, as you say, the, the, the purposes of journalists and, and the party diverge so much in the late Soviet case in a way that they haven't uh, in contemporary China?
1: Well, I think there's uh, one of the factors is the the party management of the media itself. So this idea of kind of over um on journalists and liberal editors, on public opinion makers to mobilize the public in favor of Gorbachev's reforms. There was kind of a real dependency there, um, almost an eco-dependency, you know, on, from Gorbachev's kind of people uh, towards... Uh, this media actors that were newly empowered you know he replaced all the old editors with new ones and he sort of he needed those actors to inform the public to let them know to side with Gorbachev because there was, there was a real interparty tension there not everybody was supportive of his opening up reforms which were very radical right and dramatic so part of it is like the speed of reforms was so fast that you know the only way for him to kind of accomplish what he started and he it seems like he couldn't stop it at that point was to engage these actors as his allies but kind of on almost equal footing, like he was really reliant on them. So we don't see this in the Chinese case. There isn't this kind of extreme dependence, right? There. Chinese journalists are only given a slight window into helping with very specific issues, not with the overarching scheme of, you know, how the political system should be changed. I'm sure Chinese journalists would love that, but that's not that's not what the government is, has been doing or I think will do anytime in the future, in the short-term future, sorry. So th- this, this idea, I think, the engagement, the kind of the dynamics of... Uh, uh, unequal kind of partnership in the Chinese case are much more uh, extreme than in the case of the Soviet period.
0: I see, and and, and as you say, yeah, the the suddenness uh, perhaps perhaps played a, a pivotal role, really, in all areas of of why um, Gorbachev's projects didn't ultimately come to fruition. Uh, I mean, just to come back to the Chinese case, obviously there was a period of uh, of, of reform and of, of change to the um, high Maoist socialist system uh, that that, has occurred in China too. And and you you, uh, outline in the early part of the book that critical journalism as a thing really emerged from this uh, post-reform era to to some extent. Um, But in terms of uh, the relationship between media and and party state in that Deng Xiaoping reform era, did that differ quite significantly then from that of Gorbachev's uh, reliance on the on the media as a mouthpiece of the new way of doing things.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it kind of goes back to this point where even under Deng Xiaoping, there was really only a reliance on very specific aspects, very controlled reliance. Whereas in the case of uh, Gorbachev, there was more extreme reliance and a much faster speed unraveling both political and economic opening, this kind of approach, which is very distinct from Chinese approach of, you know, very gradual and maybe some might argue almost non-existent political openings with fast economic reform. And I think in this case, also given that the context was so different, that it wasn't so much of a political uh, reform, it was more economic, journalists were not in doubt with this kind of function of, you know, deciding, you know, what kind of political shape will the system take? And when they did start to engage with that process uh, in uh, 1989, uh, right, with the kind of Tiananmen um, events that unfolded, Deng Xiaoping clearly made the decision to crack down on that. So journalists were also participating, very largely participating in the, in the Tiananmen uprising. And in this case, there was a bigger question, like, who are we? You know, What kind of things are we calling for? And is there a system that could maybe be different? Not necessarily democracy, but something more open. And the clampdown on that was symbolic of the fact that this is not what they, cho- they would choose to do. They, were, they didn't want to repeat the Soviet um, failure
0: sure sure yeah and uh, well and and then moving out of the soviet failure uh you, you then come to describe dynamics uh, in the in the current the the putin era uh, if you like um and curiously you make the point i think a really fascinating one that uh although in theory Lots of indicators suggest that media in in, in Russia uh, is able to operate with more flexibility of movement they can uh, investigate and say more things perhaps than is permissible in the Chinese case. Um, in fact, their ability to actually contribute at all to um, uh, significant changes within society is more restricted. Um, p- could you explain why why it is that that is that, that might might be the case uh, in, in in russia
1: yeah, in Russia that we see this uh Relationship is more of a sort of disjointed coexistence uh, between these two actors, a tense, a much more tense and uh, distant relationship that we observe in the Chinese case with the government under Putin, uh, treating these critical voices as more of a facade or kind of a symbol of openness, both domestically, but also to the West, this idea of having, you know, press freedom or of having diverse voices within the the system, of having dissidents as something that kind of uh, allows, um, you know, one to claim a democracy, at least symbolically, to the wider public, you know, which really points to much cynicism, right, permeating the Russian uh, political system. So not really giving much uh, thought or intentional kind of engagement uh, with these sort of uh, news outlets or journalists working for them. And the journalists on their end, um, associating themselves with a position, uh, a position that's kind of playing this role that of creating a more dynamic political system than is the case otherwise, uh, rather than some kind of collaborators or, you know, fluid partners or whatever you call them. And there are many reasons, I think, for why they choose to be more radical. Um, I think one of them is sort of historic reason of having had the experience of, you know, Gorbachev's Arab and also the 90s, which was very turbulent and um, problematic, arguably, for media freedom as well. But at least they had a lot of space to test out the boundaries, to, you know, permeate various powerful circles and to get certain things done. Whereas under Putin, a lot of that space has been really, um, you know, taken out or shut down basically by the regime so having kind of that historic legacy very different from china i think it's a very important distinction but also uh having this idea that you know change political change really has to be more radical i think most of the people i spoke to in moscow who work for those outlets they don't see themselves as you know satisfied with any sort of half change or partial openings they really expect something bigger as as a positive thing and that as the only outcome that's that's you know sufficient, that's satisfactory, which is very different again from the kind of expectations that Chinese journals allow themselves to have.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that 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 that's uh, that, that's that's very interesting, and I think it's consistent with the broader picture of. Sort of postmodern fragmentation and and cynicism, as you say, that uh, that we that we might have of of, of Russian society and the sort of media and idea landscape at large uh, under under Putin. Um, So I I think uh, I I guess would also be curious. I'd also be curious to know um, how uh, this this fragmentation uh, doesn't prevail in the Chinese context. I mean, as you say, one of the issues, in addition to the fact that the media is pretty much completely isolated and cut off from uh, access to power of any kind is the fact that they're also confronted with a public who seem indifferent cynical not really to care much about uh, a lot of what the, the more critical news sources like norway gazeta or uh, yeah. or tv rain or some of these other critical outlets are saying um what is there a difference in the Chinese public's attitude towards their own media? Why why might it be, do you think, that this this sort of cynicism hasn't emerged uh, when what the Chinese public uh, readership are are dealing with is a similarly sort of um, controlled or or, or, uh, um, managed media product?
1: Yeah, the cynicism question is very interesting. Uh, Absolutely, in the Russian case, we see a real... Dense cynicism, and I think the best work that engages with that is uh, the work by Natalia Ludakova, Losing Pravda, where she goes into much detail about how the cynicism has emerged and actually, in her view, destroyed journalism as a profession. Um, in the case of China, while I was studying this, this phenomenon and looking at this particular actors, critical journalists, I found that they were quite popular, you know, with the public. That they had a really large following on social media. Uh, they saw themselves as largely respected, um, admired and um, having kind of a wider societal role. That's kind of how many of them depicted themselves or positioned themselves. Some of these editors of more liberal Chinese media enjoy, you know, thousands of millions of followers. So there's a real kind of uh, momentum, not just not a narrow following, but a really larger kind of um, respect for what they do. Uh, that said, I think some things may be shifting or perhaps there are two things happening at the same time in the Chinese context where... Recent statistics show that the media kind of as an institution overall is losing uh trust of the public. so the public is becoming more cynical towards political institutions in China more broadly, and media is one of them, and actually uh, there's more cynicism towards the media than towards some of the other institutions. So there's this kind of um phenomenon happening as well, but I think part of it is that there's cynicism towards official media, towards propaganda, towards the kind of you know mainstream sort of uh, reporting that we often see in Chinese press. Uh, which may not necessarily reflect on the kind of more critical voices. Um, And then, of course, now we're also seeing social media effects with so many reports and just so much information uh, flooding Chinese web. Where people have a lot of choices, you know, what they read, what, the, what kind of things they access, which can also create some cynicism towards traditional media. But I think that uh, some of this distinction here is that these actors, these journalists, they're, they're not just journalists, they're kind of broader societal actors. And they're part of wider networks um, that they engage in, where they publicize information on their um, pages, you know, whether it's WeChat or Weibo or other sources, where it's not just the media is not their only base, it's often a source of income. It's reputation, but that's not the only platform that they engage in. And I think them as individuals, them as a group, as kind of part of a societal phenomenon of Chinese public sphere, uh, there's still much respect for that.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, and and, and uh, but but as you say, perhaps there are hints of something new creeping in uh, in the in the Xi Jinping era, where certainly a, a marked shift has occurred uh, in in many aspects of. Uh, the party states uh, relationship with with broader society uh, that that comprises the uh, uh, the last uh, the very last chapter of your book um which uh which listeners can can perhaps uh give a look over for themselves um i i should uh close up here really now we've, uh, we've taken up an awful lot of your time um i'll i'll note in addition that the book really shows a fantastic uh it shows it's working in an extremely, uh, extremely effective way, too, because following uh, the last chapter there, there's also a really complete set of uh, appendices and details of who was interviewed and what sort of questions were asked. And so I think uh, that there's a, a good deal of, um, of transparency there, which is, uh, of course, very fitting for a, for a book on, on this subject. Um, but uh, Maria, we've taken up a lot of your time today, uh, for which I, I'm extremely grateful Um I'd perhaps now like to ask the uh, the final traditional question of the New Books Network, which uh, concerns what it is you're working on at the moment. Um, what, what sort of projects uh, do you have on the go currently?
1: The hard question of the day. <laughs> the, 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 the torture that I'm experiencing deciding on what it is. But uh, yeah, the, the new project. So... Um, Engaging with this broader theme of how China tells a story um, to external, you know, to global audiences, kind of this idea of telling the China story, like what is the China story? Um, How is it being told? And kind of rethinking this notion of soft power in a more multifaceted and more empirical way, because we know so far quite little, actually, about what China is doing overseas in promoting its image um, how this resonates with local publics, you know, what China is adapting and, and why when it comes to strategies. I think this topic is still very much kind of a cliche in some ways. You know, there's a lot of things being told, but not much understanding of um, in-depth processes that go behind that. So I've been tangling, you know, kind of this, uh, playing with this idea uh, through a case study so far of um, Ethiopia, where I just spent a couple of months looking at Chinese um, operations, both symbolically in terms of construction, but also media and Confucius Institutes and trainings of ethi- officials. You know, many Ethiopian officials being sent to China for, <laughs> and how that resonates and what that tells us about distinct features of Chinese soft power, especially in comparison to the West.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, that sounds that sounds absolutely uh, yeah brilliant. I mean, and, and really crucial work. I think we hear so much about China's engagement in in very blunt infrastructural or technological terms with with the wider world in terms of construction as you say or or uh uh, uh, industrial or investment projects so to hear more about the uh the, the softer side of that, as you say, and, and the image and media side, I think, uh, is a really uh, brilliant uh, contribution to understanding where where uh, China is is at, really, in the, in the wider world. So that sounds great. Um, it's
1: a lot of work to be done.
0: Yeah, <laughs> certainly sounds like it. But I'm sure, based on that, based on the book we've been discussing today, you're more than uh, more than up to the task. Um, thank you so much, Maria, for being on the show. Uh, it was great talking to you. Uh, and listeners, thank you very much for listening.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: No, it, was a, it was a pleasure. Um, listeners, thanks, as I say, to, for listening to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. We will speak to you next time.